Hey guys, welcome back to True Crime Pillow Talk with me, Kristen. I hope you all are ready for the holiday week and the breaks because I know I am. Thank you all for tuning into another episode and for the support. I love you all. Today we will be discussing a case about a guy who people call Chris Watts 2.0 before Chris Watts was a quote-unquote thing. If you don't know who Chris Watts is, let me know in the comments and I'll do a quick video on him. But this Chris, his name is Chris Coleman. He was actually a security guard for a well-known televangelist named Joyce Myers. So let's get this episode started. This story is based out of Columbia, Illinois. Columbia is a small suburban town. So this case surfacing actually was a big shock to everyone. Everyone knew this couple, this family, um, and everybody was heartbroken about the situation at hand. Chris Coleman was born March 20, 20th, 1977. He was a former United States Marine bodyguard and security chief for Joyce Myers, a national publicized preacher. Before Chris started working for Joyce Myers, he was a canine handler for the Marines. And in 1997, Chris went to a canine training seminar in the, in, at the, sorry, he went to a training seminar at the Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, and this is where he met his wife, Sherry West. Sherry was 21, and she was an MP, which is a military police officer in the Air Force. Chris was 22 at the time that they met. They were together for a few months when Chris decided he wanted to take Sherry to meet his family. Um, they were together, but Chris never told his family that that was his girlfriend. And um, due to the way that Chris grew up in a very, very, very strict and religious Christian home, um, his mother and father quickly judged Sherry. Um, it was stated that she was wearing booty shorts and had tattoos on her legs uh, whenever they met her. And he stated that Sherry was just a friend and that they were going to hang out. Um, so they left after he met, and they were together for just a few months before they decided to get married. It was very unexpected. Um, literally after they met, she met his parents. Three days later, Chris had called his dad and told his dad that they were married, and it was very shocking for him and his mother. Um, but they quickly found out that the reason that they got married so quickly and unexpectedly was because Sherry was pregnant with their first son, Garrett. Since Chris grew up very religious, his dad was a minister and his mother was always in the church doing something. When Sherry became pregnant with her first son, Garrett, and that was the reason for the marriage, they, his parents understood why they did it because of how he grew up, but they also were not happy about it. So a few years go past, and May 5th, 2009, Chris left for the gym around 5.30, and he started calling Sherry, his wife, at 6.30, then again at 6.43, and then at 6.52 a.m. to wake her and her boys up, but Sherry never picked up the phone and never called him back. He quickly called his neighbor, and his neighbor... Justin Barlow was a detective sergeant for the Columbia Police Department and neighbor of, of the Coleman's. He called him and asked him to help 
And the reason that he called Justin was not only because he was a detective and their neighbor, but Chris had been receiving these hateful emails and letters in the mailbox from people stating that they were going to kill him and kill all of his family and all of that stuff if he wasn't, if he wouldn't tell Joyce to stop spreading the bullshit, um, which is in regard to speaking about the word of God. Um, if he wouldn't make her stop, that they were going to come after Chris. So whenever Sherry wasn't picking up the phone those three times he called, he got nervous and wanted Justin to go over and check the home. Um, He then returned home after that. He told Justin on the phone that Detective Barlow actually is what we're going to call him. Um, he call, Once he called him, he, he let him know that he was just seven minutes away and that he would be home shortly and to please go and check on them and see what was going on. Detective Barlow actually stated that whenever he went over there, he knocked on the door a few times and no one answered. So he walked around the back of the house and noticed that the basement window was open. He went inside through the basement window because he couldn't get in any other way. And he actually called for backup before he went through the window. And whenever he went inside and went up the stairs, he got hit in the face with a smell of spray paint. Soon after he, his backup arrived, um, Chris also returned back home from the gym and his whole family was murdered. Upstairs was the thirty was the thirty one year old Sherry, eleven year old Garrett, and their second son, nine year old Gavin, all murdered, strangled to death. He sat down on the driveway. He is uh, Chris sat down on the driveway and he started sobbing. Um, reports show that he was sobbing, acting like he was going to throw up, and he ended up sitting in the fetal position, rocking back and forth. As they continued the investigation at the house, they actually took Chris to the hospital in the ambulance to just check him out and in the ambulance ride they noticed scratches on his arms but they didn't state anything to him and once the hospital cleared him he actually went in for invest uh you know an interview with the investigators so a few questions that they asked him was have you seen anyone else outside of your wife his answer was no not really but then he answered again and said, Tara in Florida. She used to be my wife's high school best friend. So the re- investigators responded, is she a close friend to you as well? And, the, um, and Chris replied, yeah, something like that. Tara was actually a close high school friend of Sherry's. And when investigators found out about Tara, um, investigators in St. Petersburg, Florida, actually went to do an interview with Tara to see if she knew anything about what happened or what could have happened. And Tara took a, what they believed would have been a quick 20 minute interview and turned it into hours long. Um, The reason she turned it into hours was because Tara was actually Chris's mistress and Tara and Chris had a long history of being together um, only a year that they were talking and being together and stuff like that actually led to hours of investigation. And the reason being is because she pulled out her BlackBerry phone to show investigators all the pictures that they've taken whenever he would travel. Cause he was like Joyce Myers right hand man. And 
when Joyce would have to fly out of country or across the states, etc., he would obviously go with her and she would pay for everything. I do want to note right here that Chris made a lot of money. Chris left the Marines to have a more subtle job. And the reason that he got the job that he got with Joyce Myers was because Joyce knew Chris from when he was a baby. She actually watched him grow up and stuff like that because his parents were in the church and really like his dad was a minister. His mom was doing stuff in the church. They knew Joyce because of that. And so he was able to get his foot in the door. He started out at a, at a low level and it's always stated that he excelled very well in academics, sports, jobs, all that. Every time that he got like a job or did like a sport or academics, he always excelled very well. He was always top of everything and he worked very, very hard with every single job. So that's why he was able to get his foot in the door, prove himself and become Joyce Meyer's right-hand man. So every time they traveled, Chris would actually pay for Tara to travel too. But the big thing about it was it had to be a secret because with Joyce going and spreading the gospel to everyone, talking about adultery and cheating on your spouse and your loved one, you know, stuff like that, she was a firm believer that that's not something you do. If you're married, then don't cheat. And Joyce had a big thing where Chris had to walk people off the property and stuff like that because if someone worked for Joyce and they got a divorce, and they were the reason for the divorce, meaning they cheated or, you know, mainly they cheated is what were they really discussed about this. And Joyce confirmed that, yes, if adultery, if you were adulterous in your marriage and your marriage ended because of your adulterous affairs, you your job is in jeopardy. And Chris was making over $100,000 a year. His wife was a stay-at-home mom. You know, he was handling everything. They had a really nice house. So whenever this came about, this little affair that he had with Tara, um, he decided that he no longer wanted to be with Sherry, that Tara made him happy and Tara was fulfilling the duties that his wife wasn't fulfilling when he was coming home. For example, having sex and stuff like that. She wouldn't want to do all that when he would come home after these long trips. But it's like, dude, you're over here having sex with Tara. You know, you're flying her to Hawaii. And whenever they would go to other countries where it was like, unheard of for women to be there preaching and stuff like that he would fly her he would pay for everything her hotel her trip there and back and all of that stuff and he would take her out and stuff wait you know him and Joyce would come back from whatever they were doing Tara would stay in the hotel all day and when she stayed in the hotel all day um, whenever he got back after he was working and Joyce was in her hotel she was safe and everything like that she wasn't going back out him and Tara would go do stuff they would go walk around Hawaii or walk around the other countries that they were in, you know, like go eat and stuff like that and hang out, you know. So when investigators went and talked to her, she was able to provide them with files and documents, text messages, phone calls, pictures, etc. Like the list goes on of all the things. He even gave her a promise ring. They gave each other promises rings on November, t t uh, November 5th, 2008. 
There was a note in Chris's phone that investigators found that said, November 5th, 2008, Tara changed my life forever. And that's actually the same day that they exchanged promise rings and promised and vowed to each other, I guess you can say, that they were going to be together forever. And he told investigators that he told Tara that he was going to leave his wife. And there was like a lot of emails coming in uh, almost a year to the day almost it was a few months before this happened actually a month before this happened this um murder happened that whatchamacallit so the murder happened on may 5th 2009 but he started receiving he started receiving these random emails uh, email threats and then a few weeks before the murder happened, he was receiving handwritten letters in the mailbox that somebody had to just drive by and put in because there was no return address. Um, so that's how Justin Barlow, Detective Barlow, got into this was because Chris brought it up to him. He called detectives and then obviously the detectives talked to Detective Barlow because he lived on that same street. And um, Detective Barlow had his own security, and and so did Chris. And it, it's it's pretty weird because everything with Col uh, Chris Coleman's security system was there, except for the recorder that was in the house. From um, like he took the recorder and threw it out. It's like missing, so nobody knows where the recorder is. They couldn't hear anything or anything like that. But as for Detective Barlow, he had. Um, security inside and outside of the home and he actually set up a camera in his son his five-year-old son's bedroom window because his bedroom window pointed directly at the coleman's house specifically right at the mailbox so if they were to get another letter they were able to see who it was but it's quite funny because after the camera was mounted and the coleman's were informed of the camera being mounted no more letters were put in the mailbox so when he left for the gym around 5.30 and made all of those calls and contacted Detective Barlow in regard to all of this, Detective Barlow obviously went over there. He smelled the spray paint and on the walls, there was just like s these disgusting letter, um, like not letters, but it was like s parts uh, like it was like you you've paid now I've killed them all and stuff like that that people somebody had spray painted in red spray paint all over the walls so detectives had asked Chris Coleman if he had any apple red spray paint or if he had ever bought any apple red spray paint and he stated that he didn't remember buying that and then um, they found a receipt from a few months prior, about three months prior to the murders. And they were like, well, this receipt shows that you bought it three months ago. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what that's for. That's for a project that I did with my son. And it's like, how do you not remember apple red spray paint that you bought literally three months ago? So detectives decided that, um, you know, they wanted to do more investigating and they looked back on the tapes and they noticed something strange. Um, remember the scratches that I talked about in the ambulance? Well, when he was in the investigator, you know, he was getting the investigation was going on and he was getting interviewed by investigators. He actually told investigators that he was cold and that he needed a blanket. 
So they bought him, brought him like a big full-size blanket that you can use to cover from like your shoulders all the way down to your feet and have a little bit hanging. So they gave him one of those and he only used it to cover his arms. He was so cold that he was making himself shake. Yet he didn't even use the blanket to cover everything. He only wanted to cover the scratches. So when they asked him, what are these scratches on your arm? He stated that it came from the ambulance, but there was someone riding in the ambulance and I can't get a good idea of who it was. I think it was one of the investigators that actually interviewed him, but I don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure it changed with different stories that I read up on. Um, Whoever was in the ambulance with him to the transport to the hospital stated that those scratches were actually on him before he got in the ambulance and they even asked him about it in the ambulance and um, he stated that it was from the night before when he was out playing football with his sons so the lies were just like piling up over and over and over again so with this being said there were like a few of the writing samples that were given to investigators during the interview um, when Chris was at the jail doing the interview. He provided them with writing samples due to the writing that was on the walls around the house in the red spray paint. And it turns out that the writing on the walls and the paints, uh, the writing sample that Chris gave were actually a perfect match. But with literally every single wall in the house, literally every single wall, big massive letters were drawn out on the walls. You paid now and all this stuff just all over every single wall in this massive house. I mean, it's a two-story massive house and um, whatchamacallit, sorry, I didn't mean to say that, sorry. And they they believed that because of how much red spray paint was sprayed on all the walls, there's no way that he could not have one tr little tiny trace of red paint. So they literally stripped him down. They checked every single part of his body with like, it said that it was inspected with a magnifying glass, but I only saw that in one report and I read like several on this case and watched a lot of videos. <laughs> but they said that they, you know, obviously inspected his body kind of like, combing through hair with a fine tooth comb to make sure that, you know, like your hair is fully brushed, I guess is the best way to put it. They didn't find anything. He, there's even a video of him in the, um, interrogation room where a lady detective went in there with a plastic baggie and he pulled out a chunk of his hair and put it in there and they didn't find any trace of anything. No, no spray paint at all on his body, which was really weird. So, it is also said that during this time, while they were doing the investigation and finding out all this thing with Tara and everything like that, they actually let him go. So, once he asked for a blanket while in the inter interview room because he was cold and only used it to cover his arms to hide the scratches, he was actually let go after that. But due to all of the lies and the different things that were coming out from Tara, the investigation obviously continued. They found in Chris's phone, again, that note that said, and I quote, November 5th, 2008, Tara changed my life forever. On that day, they, 
excuse me, also exchanged promise rings. And again, the handwriting on the walls were a perfect match to the writing sample Chris gave to the detectives the day of his interview. And they believed that that was enough to lock him up for first degree murder, murder for his wife and his two sons. And that's why he went to prison. On April, in April of 2011 was when the trial started. The jury they picked actually was bussed in from a very, very small town that was over an hour and a half outside of Columbia. It was brought up in the trial that the reason he would not officially divorce Sherry was because, according to Joyce Myers, that that is a reason for him to lose his job due to him being the one that had the affair. So he would be the one that caused off the relationship with Sherry. It was also brought up by one of the witnesses that one of Sherry's good friends informed her um, while they were hanging out. She opened up her laptop and said, do you want to see the woman that Chris is cheating on me with? And it was a photo of Tara. She also stated to that specific friend that if something happens to me, just know Chris did it. So that was also brought up in court in regard to that. Um... Tara um, was also brought to the trial with a police escort and people stated in multiple reports that it looked like she was quote unquote part of Hollywood. It's even said that she was wearing the promise ring that he bought her back in 2008 and the time of death for all three of them was brought up in court and all three autopsy results showed that they were killed at three around 3 a.m. And that they were already starting to show signs of rigor mortis. The email threats that came to Chris Coleman was actually from his very own work computer using an email address named, quote, destroychris at gmail.com. The spray paint was actually purchased by Coleman three months earlier, and he stated it was for a project that he did with his sons. Due to how much spray paint was used, they believed he had to have some on him. And like I stated, they checked every single part of his body and he even pulled out his own hair, but there was no spray paint found. At the beginning of the trial, seven to five of the jurors were stuck on not guilty. They believed that there was no way he was guilty. His, his story stuck. The defense in all of that for him worked really hard to make sure I mean they there was a lot of money spent by his parents to make sure that he came out as a free man but the jurors changed their mind when one juror just took a wild gander and there was photos that were printed out from the Blackberry and on the back of the foot one of the photos of Chris and Tara the date read 10 21 2008 But he was stating that they started dating in November. And I know that's only a month, but that proved to the jurors that if he could lie about something that small, he could be lying about this whole case. And that's exactly why they chose guilty. And that was given to him May 5th, 2011, which is exactly two years to the day from when they were killed. And everybody was so happy. The small town, every, everybody that could be in the courtroom, the courtroom's packed. So everybody that could be in the courtroom was obviously in the courtroom. And then they had people outside. And whenever Sherry's mother came outside, she said, we did it. We got justice for them. And that's all she wanted was justice for her two grandsons and her daughter. 
He was sentenced to life in prison, and they spoke to Chris on the phone and stated to him, he stated to investigators, well, not investigators, but like news reporters and stuff, he stated that he did not kill, I did not kill my wife and family. I loved my wife and family. And one of the questions to him after he stated that was, how did you love your wife if you had an affair with her best friend? And he stated back, maybe I wasn't selfishly getting what I wanted from my wife from the physical side of things, but I still absolutely loved her. I do again want to state that um, in November of 2008, Chris stated he started receiving the death threats via email. And one of the emails stated, deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. Time is running out for you and your family. Have a good time in India. All capital letters, mother. And then on April 27th, less than a week before the murders, another note was left in their mailbox that stated, stop today or else. I know your schedule. You can't hide from me forever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning. I know when you stay home. And that is when the camera was mounted in just uh, Detective Barlow's five-year-old's window that pointed right at the mailbox. And to this day, Chris Coleman still um, pleads not guilty to this case. Um, He has tried to have a retrial or at least get his charges knocked off. He does want to go back to trial for this, and he does want to obviously plead not guilty to this and make sure that people know that he didn't do it. Um, He is still stuck on saying that he didn't do anything and he doesn't know who did this and he's very upset about it. He also stated in a 48 hours interview that if he could talk to Tara again because they no longer talk, that he would let her know that he is sorry for telling her that he wanted to leave his wife for her because that's not at all what he intended, that he still wanted to stay with his wife, and that's why he never actually filed for divorce on the day of the murder, like he had stated to her. He stated that he would be filing filing divorce papers and getting them presented to his wife on May 5th, 2009, but that's actually the day that they were killed. So thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate all your love and support. I hope that y'all love this case as much as I did researching it. We will be back next week with another case. I am now out of school for this semester, so the surprise that I have for you all is that I will be trying to upload more video uh, podcast episodes throughout the week. Um, I'm going to try to start uploading Mondays and Thursdays a new case. Um... So go ahead and share. Make sure that you're liking and reviewing my podcast. I do greatly appreciate all of you. And thank you so much for listening in. Y'all have a good night. Bye.